What do you get when the audacious and the therapist collide? A crash course in unpolished therapy. Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca aren't afraid to spin out of control, tackling all the tough talk. Their weekly sesh meets at the corner of Audacity and Advice, where their wheels and yours get turned upside down. Hey everyone, happy Wednesday. It's Rachel Silver Cohen and the one and only Dr. Boca. We are here for another episode where we have literally ditched the couch. We've grabbed the mics. We are breaking down the wreckage. It's unpolished therapy. Good morning, Lori. How good are morning. you? I'm good. How are you doing? I am well. I am well. How goes? So I'm not one to ever know the date. Ever. Like I'm the one who has to look at my phone three times to see what today is. And I realized that it's the 8th of September, which means that we're not very far off from the 20th anniversary of September 11th, which in so many ways is just mind-blowing to me that it's been 20 years. It's one of those pivotal places and times where we know exactly where we were in that moment. And it takes us back there. And I really just feel like it's such an important day in the lives of Americans and in the world. I would really love to at least honor it and commemorate it somehow, some way today on our podcast, if you're willing. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. I mean, 20 years for anything is always kind of like this, oh my God, moment to hit pause and whatever it is, whether it's something wonderful, whether it's something in the complete opposite direction, it's a real number and a milestone. So Mm -hmm. any of the years of 9-11, of course we are remembering and of course we are never forgetting. But I do think that 20 is such a monumental number. So yes, today we are still remembering and we are never forgetting. And in the spirit of that, I'm so humbled because I do have a special friend that had such a pivotal moment with 9-11, as, as so many people did, but, but a, a special friend of mine. And I want to just give a little bit of backstory. And it's my friend Whitney, who was married to her husband, Evan, on the evening of Saturday, September 8th. So today is her 20th happy anniversary. So happy, anniversary to to happy anniversary. Happy anniversary to Whitney. But she was married at the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City. And of course, surrounded by members of her beloved family and friends. And some of those friends, of course, included work colleagues. And if we think back 20 years ago, like many of us, the people that we worked with before we had families of our own or before we were married, they weren't just work colleagues, right? They weren't coworkers. They really became beloved friends and maybe like a second family almost. Again, it's not uncommon that the majority of the time we spent back in the day was probably more at work than anywhere else. So that being said, the relationships between Whitney and her fellow brokers on the municipal bond desk were no exception. These coworkers, more notably, these friends, were at her wedding in full celebratory fashion. And of course, after the wedding, newlyweds, Whitney and her new husband, Evan, they boarded a plane and they took off for their honeymoon in Hawaii. Whitney worked for Cantor Fitzgerald, the financial services firm, for those of you who may not know, located in the North Tower of the World Trade Center. And Cantor Fitzgerald occupied the 101st through the 105th floors. Mm. You could see where I'm going with this. You can imagine what it must have felt like being woken up in the middle of the night Hawaii time, which there are six hours in a different direction than we are, the morning of September 11th, 2001, after the towers were struck by terrorists and subsequently collapsed. 
I'll tell you, of the 2,977 victims that were killed in the 9-11 attacks, 658 of them were Cancer Fitzgerald employees. It's been said every single one of them who had showed up for work that day in the New York offices had perished. So you do the math on that. Had Whitney not been on her honeymoon, obviously she would have been at her desk on the 104th floor. As a result of all of this, Dr. Boca, in early 2002, as a personal response to this tragedy, Whitney and her new husband, Evan, I mean, they were compelled to find a way to offer hope to children and people who have lost so much and give them hope for the future. So they founded A Little Hope, which is a nonprofit charitable foundation. And their mission, it's so amazing. They help provide grief counseling and bereavement support services to children and teens who have experienced the loss of a parent or a loved one, regardless of their circumstances of death. And I have to just tell you what what I find so amazing is that prior to the existence of A Little Hope, there was not one single national organization that was dedicated to raising money to advance the growth of children's grief support. So that in and of itself is just unbelievable to me. Mm -hmm. And now here we are. It's 20 years later. We're right on the cusp of September 11th, just a few days away. And A Little Hope has raised millions and millions of dollars and has grown from what started as a regional organization funding just five programs in the tri-state area into what's now a national foundation. It's funded a total of 94 organizations in 39 states. Yep, 94 organizations in 39 states. And what began as a bereavement support services to the 350 children and teens that did have a family member die in the World Trade Center has now expanded to providing services for more than 250,000 American children, adolescents, and young adults. So I have to tell you, a little hope, it's not so little. It continues to give a lot of hope to those in need. And I have to tell you, of all the podcasts we've done, today is so special for me. I am humbled. I am privileged. I'm almost speechless to welcome the co-founder and my special, special dear, dear friend, Whitney Michaels, to the podcast today. Whitney, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a hard day coming up, but something positive should always come. And it's my pleasure to be here and talk about it. And I don't think people forget, but it is nice to remember. And I do feel that sometimes it gets forgotten. And I just think after 20 years, it should never be forgotten ever. So to talk about it is, I think, a good thing. There's many of us that went through these stories. So I am humbled to tell mine. Whitney, thank you. I mean, there are, like you said, lots of people who have stories, but I am not easily brought to tears. I'm not easily somebody who has these emotional reactions, in part because of what I do for a living, and I'm sitting with these types of feelings all the time. But I have heard your story. I had heard it years ago. I heard it again today. I can't tell you how many times in the five minutes that Rachel was talking, chills went through me. I mean, to go from where you were and what you experienced to being able to literally change the landscaping of mental health services for loss and grief at such an exponential number and impact is not only mind-blowing to me, it is so humbling to me. I mean, we keep using that word, but there's really no other word for it. Can you tell our listeners how you got 
through the time period and how you guys envision Little Hope? And did you ever expect that Little Hope would be, as Rachel said, giving such big hope? Because it's almost like I want to change the name to Big Hope because our crazy big hope. I want to just throw in before Whitney answers your question, because I'm a big mouth, that you don't know this, Dr. Boga, but what I also think is so amazing about A Little Hope is that Whitney's middle name is Hope. Oh, and, I didn't know that. You know, if you connect the dots on that one, that should send chills up your spine as well. So my, that was my husband. My husband, literally this idea came up, I'll get to it, but in Hawaii one day at breakfast, we were like, we need to do something. We didn't know what. And for some reason, the children is just what I focused on. I was 29, dating myself, but like Rachel said, you know, I didn't have kids yet or anything. We didn't learn even thinking like that. But everyone I worked with, the majority were older than me. I was probably the youngest. And they all had children, little toddlers to college age. Mm-hmm. And I could not imagine what was going on through all these the kids. The what everyone, but the kids, how do you go home and tell your child the story mm-hmm. just from the fact that you your parent is gone or a loved one is gone, but why they're gone. So my husband, we were playing around with names and he just kind of thought of my middle name and we kind of went from there. So that's props to Evan. Um, but that's how the name did come about. So it's beautiful. What about, so when you were at breakfast though, Whitney, or when you were awoke in what was in Hawaii time, the middle of the night, right? It wasn't morning yet in Hawaii. I mean, how do you even, if you're willing, I mean, can you walk us through a little bit of like the minute you heard? So Like you said, we got married on Saturday the 8th, did not leave for Hawaii until Monday the 10th, getting us there late Monday night Hawaii time. So it's like 10 o'clock Hawaii time, which is obviously like 4 a.m. New York time. Okay. Right. So we're exhausted. We go to sleep, you know, whatever. And I remember being woken up around 4.30 a.m. Hawaii time. So now that's like around approximately 10.30 New York. Mm -hmm. So the first tower had already fallen. Mm -hmm. And we woke up from the phone like... And we're literally like, who would be calling us at this time on our honeymoon? Even if it's the hotel, like why would anyone be called? So we're like, by the time we got to the phone, the person had hung up. But then we see the red light flashing that we had messages. And like back then we didn't text. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like we were picking up our phones and being like, it's someone trying to get in touch with us. That wasn't a thing. If our phone didn't ring, that was it. So we played the message and the message was from my best friend in Florida who said, I hope you're getting this message before you turn the TV on. Briefly said what happened. By this point, the TV's on. I mean, we're already like, when someone says don't turn the TV on, the TV was on. And she had been able to get through because she was in Florida. New York was just impossible with the phone lines. It turns out that the phone call that did wake up that we missed was my father-in-law. He didn't leave a message, but he was trying to get somehow he got through, but that's how we got woken. So we turned on the TV and... Obviously, just at that point, I don't think they were talking terrorism yet. You know, just planes mm-hmm. and hit the tower. Mm-hmm. And we were obviously in shock. And as we're still watching and not being able to get through to anyone, I don't even know how long it took before we tried to make phone calls because we were mm-hmm. like, oh my God, the second tower fell, which was mm-hmm. my tower. Okay. And I have to say that my immediate response was not like, oh my God, I should have been there. It was, oh my God, everyone I know is in there. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it kind of hit. And it was a crazy feeling sobering, not, you know, in no way was I happy. Was I guess I was thankful. I don't even know if at the time I registered any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Rachel said, work family, especially at that age, is such a huge part. And I was extremely, the business I was in was also very social. And I was very close with some of the people. 
good, bad, and ugly, I knew so much about these people. I mean, literally what they had dinner the night before. Like, I, you know, that's what you came into work. That's, you know, you knew everything. And I knew about their kids and their college and where they were going to preschool and, you know, everything. So quite a few of them were at my wedding. And they were so cute. They were like, yeah, also married couples with kids. They stayed in the hotel in New York City. They made a weekend out of it. Like, I always stayed right. with them. Their last weekend was special for them. Not yeah. at my wedding, but... Like, I remember seeing them at, at the brunch the next morning. Like, it was so nice. Like, not a lot of people stayed in the hotel. And like, my work people did because they lived in New Jersey or Long Island and they stayed in the city. So, I don't know, after quite a bit of time, I don't know how long that like, we were in the room. Finally, we were like, we got to get up and like, see what's going on in the world. So we go to, I guess, the lobby or whatever, the main build, whatever it was. No one knows anything. You know, they're all in Hawaii also. Mm-hmm. No one's in touch really with anyone. It's what you see on the TV. And then the terrorism stuff started. And at this point, they had so much hope that they were going to find people. So the next few days were literally just, I remember in the paper, they would list all the people that were found. And we would just go through and look for people we knew. Eventually, I was able to speak to my parents. I don't remember the time frame, but I do remember speaking to my father. Like right away, I got through. He also was in the same business as me. Mm -hmm. So he knew everyone I worked with. He didn't work at my company, but he was a customer of ours, I should say. And he knew everyone. He knew every, I knew anyone I needed to know. And also, I knew a lot of people at Cannabis Show. Like, my department was only 30 people, let's say, of which four of us survived. All four of us were not there back then. But I did know so many other people in the company. I mean, my next door neighbor from growing up, who was at my wedding, you know, my parents' friend, they were at my wedding. He passed away. It was just going through names and trying to figure out who, who they found and who they didn't find. Again, my initial thought was not about me. It was just that, I knew these people so well, and you heard all these stories about what was happening. I envisioned like some of these people, like what they were doing mm-hmm. in those last moments mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and what I would have been doing. Like who was jumping, like crazy stuff. Yeah. And you know, I worked for Morgan Stanley for 10, maybe it was almost 11 years. And I guess in any industry for that matter, you have your rituals, your routine, your morning routine. So mm-hmm. on the East Coast, and especially being in the financial world, time mattered, right? At 9.30 in the morning, the bell is going off and trading is starting. And that's where the hustle and bustle is coming into play. So prior to that, right? What was it? 8.46. I mean, you're getting ready to start that hustle and bustle of the day. So I appreciate that, that you say like you absolutely could envision what everyone was doing leading up to those moments. Well, no, actually it's funny, two things. Because we were in bonds, not stocks. It starts whenever you get there. Oh, that's right. We're at our desk at like 7.30, between seven, some people seven, but like let's say 7.30 to eight o'clock. So by 9.30, like you're into it. Like, you know what I'm saying? You're not waiting for that bell to go off. They were fully working. But also what I meant was I envisioned what they were doing after they got hit. Like I envisioned mm-hmm. how some people were reacting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So were they calling someone? Were they trying to go down the stairs? You know, like just different person. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I don't know. But I do think about right. what I have done. You know, I'm petrified of fire. It happens to be one thing. I won't light a match. Like I'm very scared. And I think to myself, like, wow, if I had been there, like fire would have been what would have my dad, like uh, morbid stuff like that. Were you afraid of, was fire something that was a fear of yours prior? Like literally, I remember growing up, like lighting the menorah, Mm -hmm. like being scared that the wax was going to hit my finger. Like, Mm. and I just, I think that's fear that like, I always say to myself, that's how I could have, not going to not me. But yeah, it's so natural 
to try to put ourselves into the footsteps of what, you know, because you would have been there, right? So, you know, you can imagine what you would be feeling, imagining what they're experiencing. And that's how we get ourselves into this, this place where it's so, I mean, we just compound the grief on top of the grief on top of the grief. Because you do, you have this connection with them. They were your everything, your friends, your family. I have a question though, and not to interrupt the sequence. Did Evan also work in the financial world? No. Oh, no. okay. But clearly knew, I mean, A, by course. he knew everyone. Of um, course. He did, he had met a lot of them, but um, no, he did not. Okay. Um, but, you know, but he definitely knew other people. I mean, we all knew. Right. And so it's interesting, Whitney, because during 9-11, I just moved to D.C. and I was working at GW's counseling center. So I actually got a call from Florida that, you know, a, a plane went into the World Trade Center. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, what, like it's a big building. Like, how did it miss it? You know, like, how did it hit it? Like, so, but we wound up at, at afterwards on the streets of Washington, D.C. And I was so new that I didn't realize that the Pentagon was right across the river and I saw all the smoke. Like I was just turned around because I'd only been there for like four or five weeks. And I actually had to walk with my supervisor up to the Mount Vernon campus, which was like four miles away or something. And I remember that walk. I remember thinking things similarly. I though didn't have a TV in front of me because I was doing crisis work for the entire day and then wound up having to stay on campus and work throughout the night with another one of my colleagues. So I actually didn't see any footage of it until a day and a half later. On the one hand, as much as it's hard to put all the pieces together, I didn't see the unedited version. And so I I knew people. I knew people in D.C. also. I obviously was working with some of the children of potentially people you worked with or other people in other places where they couldn't. I remember the cell phone issue. You couldn't reach anybody um, in any city, basically, of Washington yeah. or New York. But in many ways, I'm sure it's a, probably a different experience because you can play out all of it. And there's so many gaps for me because I never saw it. You know, And trust me, I'm going to pick my scenario over yeah. yours any day. Well, I also say, how about the people, I mean, that were there? Rachel, I don't know where your office was exactly, but if it was downtown, like I know tons of people who were downtown and literally walked, you know, for the people who know Manhattan from the yeah. world downtown financial district up to 90th Street, in, you know, in a hot day in September. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's just turning around and seeing no towers. Like that's, yeah. you know, to yeah. me, that must have been, I, my brother-in-law did that. You know, to me, it just seems surreal. Yeah. So, as I mentioned, I worked at Morgan Stanley too. And yes, our headquarters were in the in the towers, right? We were to World Trade Center, which is the South Tower. And we had several floors there, I think 63 to 65 or 66 or something like that. My office is actually, I was in Florida. Okay. So I wasn't even in New York City. Mm-hmm. And back then, again, 20 years ago, we all had TVs like in our big Hewlett Packard computers or whatever it was. So we had live television. And I remember, again, like yesterday, there are things you just don't ever forget. Leaning over one of my colleagues who had the TV on, like the picture in picture, and it was one after the next. And then what happened in DC and being like, wait, what, what is happening here? It's like Armageddon. And our offices, again, you know, our main headquarters were in the towers and we were like, what is happening? And then there's some fuzziness in terms of the, the timeline. We're all, you know, everyone kind of is in that haze of what's happening. My twin brother 
lived downtown in New York City. No one could get in touch with him. We had no idea where anyone was. And of course, you know, I'm a northerner. We had a million friends all over. No one could get in touch with anyone. It was back in the day, as Whitney said, there were no, no one was texting. If anything, it was like where you press your phone three times to get a letter, right? (laughs) They had shut our offices down and they sent everyone home for lack of not knowing what to do. And I went back to my apartment and it was like, now what do I do? Like you couldn't reach anyone. I remember getting a phone call hours and hours and hours later from literally some kid. That's how I describe him, who I went to high school with that was friends with my brother, that my brother must have been able to get in touch with. He lived down on 7th and 14th Street and he couldn't get in touch with anyone else. But I guess that person was the liaison to be like, Call however many people you can reach, let them know. And I remember getting that call, having no idea what the phone number was, and then just like started to sob. But that is where strength comes in numbers. One of my work colleagues who, you know, I always say is like my boss or whatever, like had called and said, I know you're alone, come over. We had spent days, you know, like they kind of like adopted me into their home and, and, Whatever happened from there, again, it's all kind of hazy. And I don't even know that I could connect the dots. But again, you go back to Whitney and her family and her colleagues who were her family, and there are no words, no. which is why it, it is so humbling that in those moments, Whitney, that you and Evan were so selfless to say, how do we help others? I mean, that we have to, and you did. So let's get back to okay. a little hope. Um, so have, well, right. Okay. So... um. Well, obviously, we didn't come up with that idea the first morning, trust me. No, of course not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not. But obviously, we wanted to go home. That wasn't an option. Obviously, no flying was for a while. Mm-hmm. I think we were supposed to stay, you know, for two full weeks. We were in Hawaii. We were going to three islands. We get one, and finally, we were able to come home, I think, after nine or ten days. Um, and my family was not pushing. Like, when we were finally able to get flights, they were like, there's nothing for you to come. You know, what are you mm-hmm. coming? And, but we were like, again, we, have we to. don't want to be here. And... Mm-hmm. In all honesty, we did still have some sort of honeymoon because we were removed. Like, even though I can't explain it, like, it did not really hit us to the effect until we got back. We knew what was going on, but we did sit by the pool and go out to dinner. You know, I was there, but everything revolved around this. Everyone we met, the first thing was the story, which mm-hmm. is a little annoying. <laughs> but um, actually, I remember because it was so hard to get in touch with people, I opened my first private like Yahoo email account, which I still have. But that was the only way I was able to interact. Like I mm-hmm. set it up every that was my routine. Like I got up, I went and got the paper, we had breakfast, whatever, and I would go to the business center and I would have some weird emails from people that because I was emailing people like I said I don't know how they knew me because I, I couldn't get into my work. You know, people still tell me we emailed you. I'm like, there was no more Canada Fitzgerald email. Like people yeah. still to this day, I have a friend. She's like, I emailed you. You didn't email me back. I'm like, I didn't get it. <laughs> well, the server was down. Yeah, I swear. But anyway, so we were sitting at breakfast. We came to the little, you know, that started. And that was like coming to focus on, which was nice. We didn't plan, you know, it wasn't, we didn't plan it out, but it definitely was like, we're doing something. This is a great idea. We spoke about who we want on the board, who could help us. When we got home and eventually, so I'm going to go forward for a second, but that was, you know, September 11th. By October, we were incorporating and getting our board together. And the response was amazing. We basically went to friends and family that we thought had in different aspects could help. And, you know, were in the business, some of them, some of them had the legal aspects, some were marketing, and we just tried to get a board together. So, okay, we finally go home. We got flights. 
and you know we get home and i will say that fly- i'm a very good flyer my husband not the biggest fan of flying but he's fine that was a scary experience flying from hawaii back um it was so empty i mean we got you know pushed the first class and evan is looking at everyone who's coming near us someone mm-hmm. back down he was you know, it was a whatever amount of hours the flight is. You know, I'm in first class. I'm not sure I'll have my free, you know, champagne and <laughs> Evan is up the entire time watching mm-hmm. everyone. Because now we're up front by the cockpit and he's watching anyone who's getting mm-hmm. near that door. Like it was, mm-hmm. it was, that was very scary. Mm-hmm. We get home and I remember that is when driving through the streets of New York City with the pictures of people posted on mm-hmm. every traffic light, you mm-hmm. know, pole and window and the American flags everywhere. I mean, we had seen it on the news. Like I remember seeing President Bush when he gave the, I remember, I think it was the day we were leaving for the airport. I remember watching the TV and President Bush like announced that, you know, he was starting in, you know, the war or whatever. And you could see New York City and, and but America coming together mm-hmm. and driving through New York, coming home to that was, it was just so different than sobering. It was so sobering. And and people were still, some people were, you know, being found, but like a lot of people were still looking for people. So that was like, I would look at the wall. Like, do I know some of these people? It, it was very weird. Also, I wanted to get home because people were starting to have funerals. funerals. And, and I was missing that. You know, there's one or two that I still to this day, I'm like, I can't believe I wasn't home for that, but mm-hmm. couldn't be. So when I got home and I remember my family coming over that night, my parents, my sister-in-law, my sister, they all lived in Manhattan. So they came to my apartment and like that initial hug was insane. Actually, my sister, I remember her saying to me, she's like, even her first thought, she knew I wasn't there. But like when it first happened, she immediately like thought of me being there. Like, she forgot that I was away. Like she totally forgot that I was on my honeymoon. So when we got back, basically that's all I was doing was I was having to choose which ones to go to because they were overlapping. So I did a lot of that. And then I guess after about a month or so, Canada Fitzgerald's got office space in Michael Bloomberg building, which mm-hmm. was around the corner from my building where I lived. So now we had all these amount of people that used to work at Canada Fitzgerald. This was just one little office space for yeah. whoever to survive. Yeah. And, you know, we went in, um, they were great to us. You know, they, everyone was just trying to figure things out, get back to whatever we were going to be doing. And the head person of my department was not there that day. And he decided that he wanted to leave Canna Fitzgerald and start a smaller firm with the four of us that were still alive. And then he brought over people who knew everyone we worked with. And basically mm-hmm. it was about like making money and he gave money to the families, mm. and it was wow. just a smaller. We did actually stay part of Canada Show because we used their technology, their platform. So we were still like in touch with them, but we basically went out on our own. And for the next few months, I helped teaching people how to use the software, you know, their technology. And by, I think, April, we like opened. So basically from September to April, which just, you know, I was getting paid, but I was barely working until the mm-hmm. end. And then he started the company and I was so happy to be a part of it because Mm -hmm. it was just, you were with people who all just like were there, like for the right reason. And I did work there. You know, I'd been a cannabis job for seven years and right out, literally right out of college. And I stayed with this other company until I moved to Florida, which I'm happy that I was a part of that because Mm -hmm. I don't know what I would have done afterwards. I was going to just ask a question about that. I mean, there was this, this big gap, you know, where you said I was working, but like I really wasn't working. I wasn't working, yeah. How did you get through that? 
I mean, a lot of times we look at the distraction to kind of keep us focused, like our jobs or children or families or what have you. And it was just you and Evan, you know, with your family around, but a job that you really weren't. And some of the same people that were, I'm going to use air quotes here, lucky, right? And weren't there that day. So there was a constant reminder. The resilience that clearly you all demonstrated is beyond words. So I'm just curious on a very human level, how did you manage those days? So I don't know, to be quite honest with you. I am not, I'm going to be honest now, I'm not someone who takes like medication really. So I did mm-hmm. not rely on any of that. Ambien helped me at night to sleep because I definitely needed to sleep. I was sure. exhausted. But I don't know. I mean, my family just at the beginning, again, just being busy going around places. And then I guess focusing on starting a new job and stuff. But I did feel very useless. I'm not going to lie. Like I was getting paid and I mm-hmm. felt guilty about that. I wasn't doing anything. These people weren't here. But I don't know. I really, I didn't ignore my feelings, but I just kept going. I don't, you know, I, I started working on the charity and that was great. And I wonder, Whitney, in, in my non-professional opinion here or whatnot, but just in observation, I guess, maybe you were just like literally in fight or flight survival um, mode of just mm-hmm. what choice did you have? And maybe it wasn't even such a conscious thought process. It was just maybe on some level, it was I got to get up and I got to do it for all the people that I lost and I have to do them proud. But also here you are, a young woman, newly married, you, you know, thank God luck was on your side, which I kind of want to get to that Mm -hmm. aspect, you know, where you are from a spirituality standpoint as a result of this. But they always say like, you don't know how strong someone is until you're actually thrown into, and I hate to use the word fire because I don't, you know, I say that tongue in cheek, but until you're thrown into whatever you're thrown into. So I have to say, I also feel like I was, like you said, air quotes, lucky. I think I'm more focused on the people that weren't lucky mm-hmm. and more on the people, not even the people who perished, but their survivors. Like mm-hmm. I looked at my family and I remember saying this to my husband. Not right then, but at some point later on, years probably. But I remember saying, like, I would have felt, I wouldn't have been here, but I would feel so much worse for him. Can you imagine? Mm. He got married. What if we decided to wait three weeks to take our honeymoon? And I went to work that day. Mm-hmm. Like, I pictured, I was so like, I can't imagine that the survivors, not the survivors from the Trade Center, but mm-hmm. like the family, mm-hmm. how hard that was. Like, I looked at my family and I was like, they're so lucky. Not like, oh, because I'm so great, but because they don't have to deal with what everyone else is dealing Mm. with. Like, I could not imagine it. Again, the kids especially, but just the circumstances of the way that it happened, it just the whole thing. And I do think I just, I don't like to be center of attention. And I just was like, I didn't even want to focus on like how I, like it just, I just wanted to Help others. Yeah. And, and so you did. And no, so not, you I did. wasn't like, oh, I have to go help others. That's my goal in life. Like I'm I'm a you know martyr, but I just didn't want to focus on myself. Yeah, and, and that's not an uncommon thing that people do when they go through grief is, you know, how can we help other people and put energy someplace else? Because sometimes we need that time away from sitting in it ourselves. Because if we sit in right. it ourselves, we fall apart. And that's sometimes scarier than having to put one foot in front of the other and deal with everything that's happening each and every day. So, And how beautiful that you guys were able to do such an amazing thing for so many people, right? And, and you know, a lot of people can just do for their neighbor, right? Or do for their parents or their kids. 
but you really, I mean, you took this and really turned it into such a, a beautiful thing. But I would love to, if you're okay with that, I would love yeah. to go back to what Rachel just said about we're putting this quote air, you know, lucky thing. But have you changed from being, you know, from this experience? I, I guess the first question is, how have you changed? And then also, do you consider yourself a spiritual person? Do you believe that in some way there was a higher power that intervened? Do you uh, not believe in anything after such a, a tragic experience? I'm curious because I think it's a question that people ask. It's like, how do bad things happen to good people? You know, I think that's an existential question that we're all asking. So I'm not a very spiritual person. You know, I'm just not. I think a lot more of how I see it is like a lot of luck and like coincidences type of things. Like for instance, my wedding date, how it was planned was originally I was looking at another place in August that would have brought me back home before this would have happened for sure. We decided somewhere else and the only date that worked was this date. And the reason being, it was around the Jewish holidays. Mm -hmm. And my mom had said, I'd like you to be home for Yom Kippur. You can be away for Rosh Hashanah. So Rosh Hashanah was like right after September 11th. And then we were getting home in time for Yom Kippur. And that is literally why we chose that date. And we switched it from somewhere else. So I just feel like that is luck. I don't think that's a higher being. And that's just my personal. There's a lot of coincidences. Like for me, um, that came out of it. I mean, my best friend who flew in from Florida for the wedding, who coincidentally worked for Cancer Fitzgerald years ago, but now is in Florida, worked for someone else because she was coming in for my wedding, was attending a conference that Monday and Tuesday afterwards at the Trade Center. She went on Monday, decided she wanted to go home and didn't stay for Tuesday. And she wow. would have been there. And never because it was my wedding. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I just feel like, so I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not spiritual, but I do think that there's some higher being, I guess, that looked out for some people. I have a question back to the notion that it's 20 years and with any milestone over the years and now specifically it being the 20 mile mark, has anything shifted differently? Is there any other maybe lessons or thoughts or any kind of internal feeling that you want to convey to anyone listening as it relates to what a monumental year this is relative to 9-11? Yeah. So, I mean, every year is a big deal. You know, by every year, oh my God, it's this year, it's that year. And again, I said it earlier, I do think that stuff happens and people do forget. Also living in Florida, I will say, was a very sobering thing for me at the beginning because I remember New York every September 11th. Now, again, it was the first few years when I was mm -hmm. in New York, but that entire day, September 11th, you know, there was memorials or I sat glued to the television to watch every name until I saw every person I knew. I moved down to Florida. They don't even show like the ceremony. So that like every year bothered me. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping they change that this year. But for me, 20 years, every year on my anniversary, it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's this. But this year it's like, okay, it's my 20 year anniversary. What should we do? I'm like, oh, it's my 20 year anniversary. That means it's 20 years from September 11. You know, it is like a big reminder. I mean, and it shouldn't be. Every year matters. You know, it just seems like 20 years is just such a long time. For instance, Think about these kids. Another coincident story is someone I worked with and someone I was a very good friend. He had three girls. He was, I think, a year older than me or two years older than me. He had a seven, a four, and a two-year-old girl. You know, he passed away. And I moved down to Florida. And a year and a half later, not speaking, 
his wife and his girls live five doors down from it. And I see them every day. Now one of them is married with a baby. I mean, I I bumped into the, the mom last night at a restaurant and I have literally seen them grow up from toddlers. And we have such a connection, me and her, but we're not super good friends, you know, I mean, I love her. Um, but every September, like there's a connection there. It's really nice to like see her and see how you talk about resilience. They have moved on and they'll never forget him. But you know, that to me is like, they, how they got through it again, like they had the family that they lost seems just so Mm -hmm. be grateful, but also my biggest takeaway for myself is I think I felt useless, like literally felt useless after this because, and I didn't really want to care about helping myself. I did want to help others. And again, not to save the world, but it felt good because I knew that others were in pain, like real deep pain. And I have to say that I've had people I know go to some of these, you know, services and like see the help. It's amazing. Yeah. So you know, I'm glad that it grew into such a big thing. And the amount of support that we've had is, you know, made it, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of you. You should be. Yeah, and I think it, I think it really does warrant reiterating what a huge impact you've made for so many families that now far exceeds the 350 children. And when you think of even just that 350 children, that seems like such a huge number of children. I mean, one child losing a loved one is is one too many. But 350 out of the 9-11 attacks just seems so daunting. And now all these years later, over 250 thousand people. Whitney, I mean, if I could wrap you up and give you a big hug and kiss, I mean, you've done so much. And Evan also, and your board and all of the people that are part of a little hope. It's not little. Again, it's such huge hope that you've given to so many people. And we never, ever hope that there's anything to this degree of, of tragedy ever again. But to know that a little hope is here to stay, to help grieving youngsters is so spectacular. And I, I hope you're proud of yourself because certainly we are. I am. Yeah. And I mean, so proud. And I almost feel like I'm in a room with somebody famous, famous, like, oh. you know, like JLo, right? Yeah. Um, giving back the way that you do. But I'm, you know, I hear it. And as a psychologist and seeing all the patients that I do, and by the way, my sweet spot is really the the 22-year-olds now, right? The college graduate, new young professionals and us, you know, our ages. Trauma is at the root of so much mental illness. And I don't even know if you realize the impact that you guys were able to intervene and deal with loss, grief, trauma, and tragedy at such a pivotal moment in these children's lives that changed the trajectory for their eternity. I mean, literally, and I'm speaking that as a professional, not just somebody who it's like, yeah, what you did was amazing. As a professional in the profession, I would like on behalf of all of the psychologists, therapists, mental health counselors to thank you because you really have made a huge diversion in a positive way. Whereas we would have seen them later in life going through reliving all of this. We would have seen the alcohol use and the the drug use, and we would have seen the self-mutilation and the inability to form relationships. And you really intervene. So thank you. 
Thank you. I mean, I just have to say, obviously, my husband and I started this, but honestly, it is so beyond us. I mean, who we started with, some people came and went. I mean, we're way less involved now. We've done here, you know, in full disclosure. But I love that we started it and I love that we brought on the right people because, like, we brought on someone in your field who was amazing. And I have to say, like, I agree with what you said that all these people, what could have happened to them? I think watching them, seeing them being surrounded by others was a very big thing. That's a very big thing in the organization. They go to these camps where they're surrounded with other kids or teens or whatever age they're at. And they're with people who understand them Mm -hmm. way more than, you know, we can probably. So I am very happy that we were able to help that and that it has grown way above and beyond anything that we ourselves or what we could ever do so you know everyone who helped me get get that organization started and and yeah and kudos to all of you and interestingly you said it's you know they get to be around people who understand and what you just said is i have this special bond with my neighbor and her children because we went through this together and that's really what this is about whenever we go through these experiences knowing that we have other people i um, i was thinking back to 9-11 just before this and I don't speak to the individual who I walked to Mount Vernon campus with only on September 11th, every single year for the past 20 years. It's almost like a competition now. If Bill can get to me before I can get to him. And it not only brings you back to that moment, but the thank God I was with somebody, right? Like they comforted me. Like Rachel said, that somebody welcomed me into their home. I was comforted. I had somebody there with me that was experiencing what I was experiencing in that moment. And we were supports for each other. So every year when we have that conversation, whether it's via text or sometimes it's over phone, it brings me back to the gratitude that I have, all the experiences and the emotions that I had, and really how much life has gone on and yet we're still connected in that way. I agree with that too. Of course, I still have the once a year, and I say obligatory, but I'm so grateful that Mm -hmm. we're able to still reach out to those people who had such a driving force in this specific day and then the days and months thereafter and to connect and say, hey, I'm thinking of you. I'm sending love and how are you and and whatnot. And I do think, again, I'm not a, a professional at all, but I do think it's important to, when you feel those feelings, to feel it, to sit with it, to recognize it, and then to really kind of take mental stock of the growth that we've had in all the years. Again, these big number milestones, I guess, can be a trigger for a lack of a better word. But if we take a moment to just be grateful for where we're at and what we've gotten out of it. And again, you never want to have a tragedy to see the light on the other side. But Whitney, the light is so bright around you and what you've done. Yeah. And I do want to just remind the listeners to a little hope, chari- nonprofit charitable foundation. If you're looking for more information, if you want to read up more, if you want to make a donation and help out, certainly please do so. The website is www.alittlehope.org. They have granting to help other organizations and charities that want to give money to people in need. Granting at a littlehope.org is where you can seek more information on that. On social media, they are at grieving kids. That's at, you know, like the little symbol grieving kids. Uh, I encourage everyone to take a moment 
today. Um, and certainly on September 11th to still remember, of course, and to never, ever forget what we've all been through. And Whitney, it would be remiss of us to not wish you a happy anniversary. Okay, 20 years, it is a big deal. And I hope that there's lots more happiness. You and Evan have done a wonderful, wonderful thing for so many people. And it's been such a privilege to hear your story and for you to share with us. I know it's not always easy, but I love you um, for a multitude of reasons, not just because you founded a wonderful charity. I feel so blessed to have you in my life every day, not just on September 8th or on September 11th. And we're thrilled to have you. You're obviously now always welcome back and a friend of the show forever. So thank, thank you, you for being thank here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And you know, I love you. And thank you. I mean, this was a privilege for me to be able to be in this room and to hear the story and share the experience. And I do hope that you and Evan can find something special and, and really celebrate going through everything that you went through, how solid your bond must be at this point and to cherish this and take that day, actually take today and enjoy every second of it. And to our listeners, September 11th, stop, pause, remember, remember all of Whitney's people, all of our friends, all of our other fellow Americans who went through this and have come out the other side with more than and less than, right? Um, with the loss, there's oftentimes great things that come out on the other side, but there's a whole process that we have to get through to get there and it is not easy. And so take a moment and remember all of that because it's a day that will forever be enrooted in who we are and who we are as a country. So thank you, Whitney. Really, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a good place to kind of end. I'm going to celebrate with Whitney too. And shout out to Evan as well. Happy anniversary. And for the listeners out there, thank you for being with us this morning. This, of course, has been another episode where we have ditched the couch. We've grabbed the mics. We've broken down a lot of wreckage. Next week, we will be back on the corner of audacity and advice where our wheels and potentially yours will get spun upside down. Thank you for listening. On behalf of Dr. Boca and myself, Rachel Silver Cohen, this has been Unpolished Therapy. Have a good week, everybody. Great sesh, girls. Hey, everyone, like what you heard? Then don't miss out on what comes next. Subscribe now and please give the girls a five-star rating. Learn more at www.unpolishedtherapy.com. Find and like them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll see you next week when Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca ditch the couch, grab the mic, and break down all the wreckage.